When live professional golf made its return at Seminole a couple weeks ago, there were no outside media members allowed on the grounds. Nor were there media members allowed at the Match 2 at Medalist, which turned into cable TV's most watched golf event in history. But our Michael Bamberger has a way of showing up places. I called a friend and uh, a friend knew of a mutual friend who lives in this condo. And I called that mutual friend and he invited me. He invited me on up. He was at Seminole and he was at Medalist. And now he's here joining us. I'm Dylan DeChair and this is The Drop Zone. All right. Michael Bamberger, uh, you're back in Philadelphia now, but I want you to take me through a trip that you've been on. This is a kind of a novel idea in this era, is a, a business trip. Well, thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me. But let me start with this. Where are you and how are you doing? This is, you're already are turning this conversation around on me, even though you are supposed to be the interviewee. I'm doing well. I'm in a small town in rural western Massachusetts. Uh, but I have not been to Florida recently, and you spent a couple weeks in Florida, which is always the center of the golf world, but was especially the center of the golf world uh, these last couple weeks. So, all right, take me back to its ancient history now. There was televised golf at Seminole. So, Michael, for starters, can you tell me a little bit about Seminole and what the essence of that club is? Seminole is a golf club in South Florida. Sometimes people speak of the big four American clubs. It's pretentious, but it's kind of a real thing for a very limited 0.1% of American golfers, not even that. And and the big four uh, sort of spread out would probably be Augusta National, Cypress Point Club next to Pebble Beach, Pine Valley, which is in southern New Jersey, and the Seminole Golf Club, which is a uh, Donald Rust course in uh, Juneau, Florida. It's about uh, 20 minutes north of uh, north of Palm Beach, and it's very subtle. It's a subtle golf course. It doesn't have rough. It doesn't have a lot of trees. Uh, the wind can blow there. It's got extremely fast exposed greens. So it's never uh, been a place where they've had any kind of tournament play uh, for public consumption. That was a big draw for millions of us who are interested in golf and golf course architecture and Donald Ross just be able to uh, to see this to see this golf course uh, through the magic of TV. I'm wondering if there's anything you can tell me about your own relationship with Seminole. I know as with the other members of that big four there's there's certain things you can't really say on the record but I wonder if there's yeah, anything no, you I, could tell me. I first played it in uh, 1990 with a man named Ted Emerson who was an old-time USGA gent feel like I know the course uh, uh, pretty well. It's got a, uh, it's got a very, very distinct golfy culture. And uh, so, and because uh, so few are lucky enough to get to play it, there's a lot of uh, uh, intrigue about it. And I think that was the, uh, that was the number one thing uh, going into the Seminole event. And, you know, really the number one reason why I wanted to get myself down there and, and and try to cover this uh, now ancient, but still people are interested in the match. Gary, the two teams are going to be competing in a better ball skins game format. That means each team will start with $500,000 in the bank. The remaining $2 million will be played for during the 18-hole match. Holes one through six are each worth $50,000. Uh, well, Michael, so where did you end up being for the event? I, I did have the hope that I would be able to cover it uh, on the ground. 
Uh, I think uh, other reporters had that same hope. Maybe you could have had a couple of pool reporters as, uh, as the White House does. I, I was able to watch uh, parts of it from a condominium beside the, uh, well, really right beside the 13th tee, 12th green, right, right in there, um, in, a, uh, in a corner of the golf course that gets you very near the ocean. And from that vantage spot, and there were about maybe half a dozen of us up on, up on this roof, um, you could actually see a lot of the golf, and you could see the entire course. And even though I've played the course a lot, of course, when you play a course, you're on ground level. But just from an elevation of, you know, let's say 50 or 60 feet, um, you could actually see the golf course in a way I had never seen it before. And dare we ask how you ended up on the roof of a condominium abutting Seminole Golf Club? No, you know my ground rules. You ask whatever you like, and I'll answer as best I can. Uh, but the short answer, and uh, I, I, even though anyone could figure it out if they were so tempted to, but uh, I called a friend, and uh, a friend knew of a mutual friend who lives in this condo, and I called that mutual friend, and he invited me. He invited me on up. It's about the only place where you can actually uh, uh, see the golf course because on the other side of the course, where the entrance to the uh, to the main clubhouse is. There are tall, tall hedges, and uh, there's really nothing that one can see from there. Uh, on A1A, there's nothing one can see. Now, typically, one might be able to go on the beach and watch a little bit from there, although you'd have to climb a dune, which isn't exactly uh, appropriate. Uh, but you couldn't do that on, on this particular Sunday because uh, the police had closed off that part of the beach. So this, uh, this, this rooftop of this uh, maybe three- or four-story condo was probably, the, uh, probably about the only place you could actually see something short of being home where you can see a lot more than I can see. And what was your sense of how it went? Uh, because, it, you know, we've seen televised matches of different kinds, certainly for decades. But this one, there was a little bit different type of scrutiny on it, I would say. Uh, the characters involved were different. The situation was different. How'd it go? You know, that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, compared to, say, The Shells, Wonderful World of Golf, which, you know, many of us have watched uh, on TV. This is Shells' Wonderful World of Golf, a series of international golf matches played on the world's most famous golf courses. And there's a lot of preamble. There's an announcer there side by side with the players. There are caddies. And it feels like an event, whereas from my odd vantage point of the rooftop, Four guys carrying their own bags, wearing shorts. Uh, it didn't look like uh, it didn't look like tour players, maybe tour players at home, but it looked like a very casual round of golf. But what was it like for you watching it on 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 TV? How, what what which I did not really experience. Uh, maybe cut a little highlights later. But what was that experience like for you watching it? Well, overall, it was a success. Even the fact that it happened, I think, by definition, made it a success. Uh, it was certainly something to get used to. I don't think the Witty banter went off as planned, and the sparse camera crew was definitely noticeable from a, a viewer perspective. You realize all the things we get spoiled uh, watching various broadcasts. You can see, you know, even being able to see the shape and the path of every shot is, you know, something that we can't always take for granted. So it was good, but it wasn't, you know, the best golf match ever. And, and along those same lines, uh, and by the way, one could say this of St. Andrews and, and a lot of, you know, flat-ish, not flat, but flat-ish seaside courses that didn't really show on TV, like many seaside courses don't, because you don't have uh, tree lines to, de to define uh, the holes and, 
you don't have tree-lined holes that uh, that define the holes and uh, and tell you sort of the shape and the obstacles. And it it can sort of all just look uh, flat and plain. But when you're playing Seminole, you, you don't feel that. But I could imagine on TV it, it it looked quite different. Yeah, I mean, it's been a little bit of a stretch of us getting a peek behind the curtain because now I want you to take me to week two in Florida, or at least day four or five in Florida, when our attention was uh, then shifting to medalists. Here are the Palm Beaches at a brand new golf course. Carved out of the sand hills and marshes that dominate this area, this breathtaking layout also possesses many characteristics of a Scottish lynx. For our listeners who might not know anything about medalist, how would you describe it? So the medalist uh, opened, uh, I believe, in 1995. My memory, I was there, is that uh, there was a match the day after the Doral tournament concluded on a uh, on a Sunday in March in 1995. I think uh, Greg Norman, who designed medalist, was in contention and in position to win, and something went wrong at the end. I think maybe Nick Faldo won. I'm not certain about that. But the following day, there was a uh, match. Today, it will host a match between Nick Price of Zimbabwe, the number one player in the world and Greg Norman of Australia, the number two player in the world. And, uh, and, and I walked the course and, and followed them. And I remember thinking, this has got to be one of the hardest golf courses I've ever seen, in part because the carries were so long. And uh, it was a Pete Dye, Greg Norman course. The carries were super long. Uh, the fairways were narrow. And it just seemed like there was a lot that could go wrong once you were, once you were off the fairways. And, uh, and then when I played the course, and I'm sure I played it far too long, of course, uh, for me, um, uh, it was just extremely difficult. And it, and it was in a period where American golf was really celebrating difficulty above all else. You know, now we're in a period where we're celebrating playability above all else. Uh, but Norman built the course with, uh, with Pete Dye. Norman founded the club uh, with two other people. And... Um, and, and, and Norman has had a tempestuous relationship with, with medalist and vice versa. A golf legend has left the very club he helped create. Good evening. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Todd McDermott. And I'm Tiffany Kenny. Terry Parker explains the battle between Greg Norman and the medalist golf club in Hope Sound. Uh, he has not embraced uh, uh, many of the changes that they've made to the course uh, over the years. And uh, it's just been an, an odd circumstance uh, or just an, an odd situation between the two of them. But uh, Norman gave me a, a tour of the course uh, a few days leading up to, uh, to, to this year's match. Uh, we were in a cart together, and, uh, and, and you could still see, even though at one point he asked for his name and Di's name to be taken, Di and Norman wrote a letter together to the club asking their names to be formally removed as the architects. That did happen. But what was unmistakable when I was with Norman was that there was still an enormous amount of pride uh, on his part for having gotten this course uh, off the ground. And really, no matter what you would say about the golf course and how many, you know, changes were made, minor and major, it's still a Norman Pete Dyke uh, uh, golf course. And it's, I, it looks to be much more playable now uh, than it was then in the, uh, you know, in the nearly 30 years since then, I've gotten much wiser about playing tees that are appropriate for me uh, <laughs> as people do as they get older well so that's interesting it seems like norman is then sort of stuck between being proud of the club's founding and and the course's design but then uh some other complex emotion with the golf course now 
no surprise there. We all uh, we all want it both ways in whatever the situation might be. They've got two of the most famous quarterbacks of all time. We're going to play your course, two of the most famous golfers of all time. The whole world is starving for golf. Your golf course that you founded, you founded the club, you co-designed the golf course, is going to be the attention of the international golfing world for an afternoon. And, of course, it stands to reason that you would want attention uh, or credit uh, for the role that you play, but you can't truly have it because of your own history with the course. So it's, it's difficult, to say the least. And what is Greg Norman like as a guy to spend time with? Because you spent a bunch of time with him uh, the week of the match. What is he like as a presence? What, what's he like personality-wise? And I think you and young Sean Zuck uh, of Lobsterman Today magazine slash golf magazine slash golf.com have had that experience. Well, let me ask you, since you've, you, you're, you're, you didn't know him in his prime and, and you've experienced him in person more recently, what, what, what's your own experience like being with him? Well, my main experience and my main impression is that he is uh, different from a lot of other former legendary golfers in that he has gone out of his way to define himself beyond the game of golf. So he, I think my, my impression is that he defines himself as a businessman now more so than a golf champion. Yeah, but I would agree with that. And what, what, what did you, what was it like for you to actually be in his presence? I mean, he's extremely warm. He is someone who uh, certainly has a, a powerful pull over the room. And I would say he makes you feel important uh, when you're talking to him in the same way, Michael, that you're doing by turning my own questions around on me. But I would agree. That, I mean, I find Norm to be a charismatic person. Uh, and... Um... I find him to be interesting, a highly intelligent person, very intelligent about golf. Uh, of course, he has an ego. This man was the number one golfer in the world for 331 weeks. That's a long, long time to, to, to dominate uh, a very interesting game. And then he was, I think he would have been in his mid-50s when he contended in a British Open. I think he was in the last group of that, uh, that second British Open, that uh, Open Championship that uh, Padraig Harrington won. Norman has a very distinct point of view. He knows what he knows and what he knows, he often knows uh, firsthand. Um, he's a headstrong person. He was a headstrong golfer. And uh, he's not a shrinking violet. As a reporter, I don't know what more we could uh, uh, really want from a person. What I want really is for the person to be uh, authentic and uh, and say whatever you want about Greg Norman. I do think that he's, uh, he is an authentic person. You know, that, and, uh, yes, he has a substantial ego. Yes, he's, he's, he's earned the right. He's won all over the world, many, you know, many, many times. And uh, he's a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, of course, as he should be. And, uh, yes, he didn't win nearly as majors as uh, he would have wanted to and as he might have. But uh, he's a remarkable figure in the game. And, and to some degree, I feel like he hasn't really gotten the credit that he deserves. Well, and he still seems to have unresolved business with the world of golf. Um, I know he's, he's moved on in some ways with his life to other pursuits and other interests, but you know, even in your stories, Michael, which you've been doing a series of Bamberger briefly's in the morning, which have been fantastic, but you've touched on some of these unresolved issues that Norman has not only with, uh, with medalist itself, but then also, you know, he's had this, strange relationship with tiger woods that he has never quite been fulfilled by it seems like and uh you know you had him 
talking about uh, the Premier Golf League and, and, you know, just different ideas where it seems like what he wanted uh, and what happened were not quite aligned in the world of golf. All I try to do, Jim, is be the best out there trying to lose these golf tournaments. I'm out there trying to win these golf tournaments. He comes again to Augusta as the world's number one ranked golfer, the game's all-time leading money winner. His face is on buses and billboards. His golf course business is burgeoning worldwide. And yet as he goes along and kicks at the earth, it is as though to rearrange the hurt that is inside. A lot of what you hear from Norman, and a lot of reasons that, that I find him someone that you can relate to, is if you scratch the surface of what he's saying, you often can actually hear and even though this would be a hard thing for, for him to maybe to, to acknowledge, but you know we can make up our own mind, what you actually hear is unrequited love and hurt, which are, of course, extremely common emotions. So unrequited love would be he loved Augusta National. He loved that Masters tournament. Of course, he had you know, uh, you know, several opportunities uh, to win there, and he never did. And uh, you know, it's hard to imagine anybody who would have – you know, Tom Weisskopf and Johnny Miller would, would, would come to mind, Ken Venturi, uh, who came so close to, to getting a coat, who would have worn the coat so well, physically and, and, and metaphorically, would have so relished being part of that uh, Tuesday night uh, champion's dinner. Uh, but that's life. You, we don't always get the things that we want. Um, and then in terms of hurt, um, you know, hurt is a function of uh, ego often. And, uh, uh, you know, so he had these ambitious plans. He's an ambitious person. One of the things that he was very ambitious about was the idea of having a global golf game and a global tour. And he started talking about this 25 or so years ago, a world golf tour. Uh, Dean Beeman, who uh, was the PGA Tour commissioner at the time, very successfully uh, stifled it and never really got off the ground. Uh, and Norman never let go. Uh, and Norman's got that personality type where he's never really going to let go. And, and good for him. I mean, the world would be a lot less interesting if there weren't people with that kind of personality type. And now there's this premier golf league. As far as I know, he doesn't have a stake in it. But he obviously is viewing this, the prospect. You might, you might think it's Jim now. I don't, I don't, not you personally, Dylan, but any of us might. I don't know. It seems to me very back burner with everything going on in the world these days. But He's a real believer. And of course, he would like to be proven correct. Well, golf was definitely on a global stage last week. Uh, I guess a combination of the star power and the fact that so many people were starved for live sports in general. Um, But what were your impressions being pretty much on the ground uh, for the lead up and then the day of the match two or whatever, whatever it is you want to call it, Michael? Well, it, I was absolutely on the ground uh, at match two, and I didn't see a single shot in person. Uh, but uh, uh, Norman kindly arranged for me to uh, play the par three course uh, that's on the same property as the Medalist Golf Club. Uh, Medalist, like like some other clubs uh, of its ilk, is very much secluded. And when you're on one hole, you don't see very much other golf, and you see very few homes uh, over the course of, uh, of playing the course. Uh, but anyway, so I really can't give you any sense of what it was actually like to be uh, on the golf course, except for the fact that I was on a neighboring par three golf course, and it was wet, it was windy, it was dank, and there was uh, there was something great. For me, uh, playing, just playing this par three course, great to be out there. And I'm sure for those guys, you can take that same feeling. And, uh, and multiply by a thousand. Adrian Forsum has assembled on this Memorial Day weekend. Peyton Manning will be matching up 
and pairing up with Tiger Woods on his home course at the Medalist Golf Club here in Florida. Tom Brady still active. Dial it up his golf game as he pairs up with Phil Mickelson. Game day has arrived. The match is on. They are playing competitive golf under, under goofy rules, but who cares about that? Uh, people were starved to watch golf, and they were playing golf. And, you know, right now with all the chaos uh, in, the, in the world and all the difficulty uh, uh, that so many of us are experiencing, and you know, you and I, Dylan, have been extremely lucky and well-protected from it for, uh, for the most part. But your heart can't not go out to the tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people across the world who have it much, much harder than, than, than you or I might. Uh, to be able to hold on to the things that are dear to us, and I know for the two of us, you know, playing golf, whether it's competitive or casual, and we've played the latter, and you've played a lot of the former, uh, is a great thing. So, th so there was a lot of heightened emotion going into that uh, to that medal of medalist event, and it played out in the event itself. And I thought it was I thought it was terrific. Well, it was really fun seeing a different type of interaction. It was fun seeing golf in a different format. Even some of the stuff that I thought would be hokey, like guys riding around in golf carts, I thought ended up working well because it was a natural chance for uh, the players to talk to the guys in the studio. And, you know, it actually worked probably well given the weather conditions also. And, and pace of play was a bit glacial besides the carts too. So overall, I think it was a big success. Seeing Tiger Woods at his home course had some intrigue to it. Um, and it, but for me, and I wonder if you have the same impression, being in the area and near this competition and really being in, in the greater Jupiter Palm Beach area really drives home just how densely packed in some of the best PGA Tour players in the world really are. Well, no, no question. I think you and I have both, I, I know we both have, have written about this, but uh, for, for years, uh, uh, Orlando was sort of a uh, uh, an American golf capital. Dallas has been, uh, Greater Phoenix has been, to a lesser degree, Southern California, Los Angeles, and San Diego has been. But really, uh, you could say starting with Jack Nicklaus uh, um, moving to Lost Tree probably in the early 1970s, uh, but much more so since uh, uh, Norman moved from Orlando to South Florida and then Tiger did. And now it's a long, long list with uh, with Ricky Fowler and Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy and and uh, Lucas uh, Glover and Louis Oosthuizen and uh, Lee Westwood I think had a house down there. So it's uh, Ernie Ells does. So it's a long, long list of people who have uh, who have gravitated to the area. And it's interesting when you hear Jordan Spieth uh, speak about South Florida. You know, I, I've detected a little bit of uh, longing on his part to be a part of the action and. Um, you know, most of these guys, not 100% of them, but most of them love to play golf. They love to play pick up golf. And how much fun would it be to, uh, to go to your golf course uh, and know that you're going to get a great game and that guys know how to play and they're going to play, you know, in under three hours and uh, go to the range and uh, knock yourself out. It, it's the unofficial capital of the, uh, of the PGA Tour. Well, one of my favorite connections is that, you know, maybe even as much as it was Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman, I think it might have been Jesper Parnovic's move 
to the Jupiter area that really swung the balance of golf. Jupiter, Florida, an ocean oasis 20 minutes north of Palm Beach, is home to many of golf's elite players. We went to see Jesper Parnovic, who's back on the PGA Tour after a serious back injury had threatened retirement. Hello. Welcome to my house in uh, Jupiter, Florida. Come on in, I'll show you around. Uh, Elon Nordegren, who was then married to Tiger, was good friends with Mia, Jesper's wife, and so I think she was instrumental in getting the Woodses to then move down to Jupiter. And so goes Tiger, so goes the rest of the golf world. Or, or at least that's my impression of uh, of his move there, Michael. Uh, that's very interesting. And, you know, the Swedes, th there was a whole group of Swedes. And uh, I love how you pronounce Jesper's name. I always say Jesper, but Jesper sounds so much more elegant and probably <laughs> appropriate. Um, ha has someone ever told you that's the correct way to say it? No, I'm just winging it just like you are. Okay, well, I, now I've seen Jesper, Jesper around a lot. He, there's a place where I've played a lot and hit a lot of balls called the Palm Beach Par 3 course. And, and Jesper, Jesper used to live in a condominium beside that golf course, and I've seen him at that uh, Par 3 course. Uh, and then he drew other Swedes there, and as you say, he married Mia, and Mia drew, well, Elin, I believe, either Elin was working for them. What, was she working for them? Is that how she met Tiger? She was working for them, and yeah, that's how she met Tiger. But then, then they were up in Orlando together. But then eventually, uh, you know, decided to buy property down in Jupiter and built a house. Uh, complications ensued, I would say, Michael. But that was part of the impetus for Tiger moving down to uh, the Jupiter area. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, a man named well Frank Turkinian, the longtime producer of golf for CBS. Uh, uh, he lived in West Palm, and uh, one of his deputies, a man named Chuck Will, uh, lived down there. So, so there were there were people. You know, it wasn't like it was a secret. But I think you're right. I think uh, Jesper, Jesper should get uh, sh sh should get a lot of uh, uh, credit here. Have you ever played that par that par three course? Oh yeah, I mean it's one of the most incredible par three courses. Maybe the most incredible par three course I've seen, just based on the variety and whole length where it is uh, with respect to the ocean. It's you know bookended on either side by the intercoastal and the ocean itself but yeah i mean there's there's plenty of good golf and interesting characters all right but i wonder michael uh you didn't get a chance to watch this match on television either but i wonder if there are any general impressions that you got from the match whether it was a success or if there are things that the golf world might learn from it it's a funny thing with golf. You know, when you look at a tour player, not all of them, but many of them, you know, the swings are majestic. But when you take Tiger Woods' swing, it seems to be at another level. Now, is that because it's Tiger Woods making the swings and we're so conditioned to ooing and eyeing off him? I really don't. I'm not a savvy enough observer of the golf swing to say that. But I know just even watching him warm up, the rhythm of the swing and the way he goes about his business and the way he holds his finish and the way he gets the next ball teed up um, to where he wants it. Everything he does, there's just a little something special about it. And, uh, and we're starved for golf and we're starved for Tiger. We haven't really, basically, we haven't seen him. I mean, if we really want to get down to it, we haven't seen him since last year's Masters. So we're talking over a year. So to see Tiger Woods, you know, apparently healthy, apparently happy, making good swings and playing for real, which is really the only way he can play. He can't play 
uh, what do they call that? Hit and giggle. He can't play hit and giggle golf. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's pretty away. tasty. Right it? in the middle. Darn it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was my first biggest takeaway is that this guy at 44 still has it, still makes it an incredible swing and is still such a captivating uh, figure in the game. And I think he probably will be for a long time to come as long as, uh, as long as his body can hold up. You know, Phil, there's a million things you can say about Phil. He's, he's such a showman. Million five for Phil Mickelson to hit bombs. That's oh. what you do anyway, Phil, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I had the coffee. I got to activate the calves, and I got to step on one here. <laughs> come on, baby. They're so different. They're night and day, the two of them. Uh, but, you know, that's okay. Uh, I mean, the world would be a much less interesting place if we're all, if we're all the same. And then, as you know, the Scots have said for a thousand years, you know, golf addresses a man. You know, in these more uh, less less sexist times, you would say that golf reveals a person. Uh, you wouldn't say addresses a man anymore. Uh, but Tom Brady looks like someone uh, who, and I think this is probably very very accurate, who has a perfectionistic instinct, and he stands up to that ball, and he looks like he wants to be perfect. And of course, as Dr. Bob reminded us in one of the titles of his book that I haven't read, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And, of course, we found that out very quickly, that um, if you've got a really bad grip, it doesn't matter how strong and fit and handsome you are and how many Super Bowl rings you have, if you've got a really bad grip, you're not going to hit it good. Hey, Tom, how many shots you want? This Chuck. Chuck. C come on, man. I'm going to give you some shots, man. I want All some right. of you. got to get going. Folks, not football, bro. <laughs> I'm trying to win a Super Bowl. Uh, so he looks like he needs to make uh, some basic changes. And then Peyton has a uh, Peyton has a manner that's all his own, and uh, I find it extremely winning. So anyway, uh, it was a, a neat confluence of things, but for me the starting point was Tiger playing for keeps and knowing that Tiger really can't not play for keeps, which is central to his personality. I mean, one of the interesting parts to me is – the way Tiger disappeared except as a golfer in like the last hour or so of the broadcast, hardly heard from him. I was even going so far as to wonder if there was something wrong with his microphone because we heard so little from him and instead leaned on the other guys for the showmanship and leaned on Tiger for the, the golf and ultimately sealing the deal. But I thought that it was interesting and telling seeing just how eager he was to just play golf now that he was paired with a few guys who aren't on the same level when it comes to star power, but are about as close as it gets. Well, yes. Um, and I think part of his thing, this is really tea leaf reading and, you know, mind reading. So this is not reported fact at all, but um, I think Tiger knows he can't compete with Phil as a showman and he doesn't want to. Uh, so he was going to give Phil that whole stage and Phil handled that expertly. I mean, that moment when uh, when he asked Tiger to mark the ball and he didn't, and he, then he darn near hit it, uh, 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 was amazing. And um, it kind of proved that he authentically, legitimately did need or want Tiger to uh, to uh, mark the ball. And I was to show what an unsophisticated gambler Tiger must be because he was he offered to give him the hole if he hit Tiger's ball and extracted nothing in return. I've seen Phil do some odd things before, but having T up mark that ball has got to be up there. You want me to use one of my U.S. Open medals? Do you have one? Huh? Do you have any? I got some silver ones. Do you have any of the gold ones? <laughs> <laughs> you 
Either one will work. I should have three on my feet tomorrow. Let me have it over. Uh, now, I know, Dylan, you know your way around a, a wager. Does that make any sense? No, I guess not, except that there was some kind of prescribed trash talk that he was working in that it seemed like he'd planned out beforehand. And uh, no, I'm not sure what the other side of that one was. Oh. <laughs> it's funny. Do you think that there's anything that golf in general televised entertainment style golf can learn from this match because it was well received. And I think a misconception is that the fun piece of the mic'd up stuff is, you know, guys chirping back and forth to each other or talking directly to the camera. When I think at least among avid golf fans, I don't think that is as intriguing as getting a peek behind the curtain. So Essentially, the best version of it would be that these guys would not be self-aware or would not be self-conscious about being mic'd up, which is probably ultimately impossible. But I think that that's the dream is that you're getting a peek into these conversations in a real way. And it's not just, you know, Phil winking at the camera and and saying something clever. I would I would completely agree with that. And rules officials, you know, particularly interesting conversations. People are fascinated by the rules. You know, most golf is not played. Uh, fastidiously by the rules who just play a more casual game but they can't play a casual game and it's got to be held to a very high standard and the rules official uh, knows the rules explains the rules and players uh, sometimes are confused by them so those would be very interesting conversations I really wonder on a literal basis if you actually need mics on the uh, on the players maybe you really just need a mic on the golf bag or a mic on the caddy and the rules officials and uh, uh I don't know if you need mics on the players to, to, to get to what you're talking about, get really inside the action. Uh, yeah. It's not the, it's not the players talking about, uh, you know, some attractive uh, person in the gallery uh, that they have their eye on, you know, that's who cares. And that's, you know, that's private, but, uh, but uh, how they actually play the game and how, how it uh, informs us, that would be uh, that would be very interesting. That could enrich the whole experience. All right, this brings us to my final question, Michael, which is uh, a personal one. And I'm wondering how it felt to be back on the ground reporting, which is where you, you know, to my knowledge, this is where you're most comfortable being out on the ground, talking to people, finding stories, chasing them down. What did it feel like to be in Florida for this stretch of time watching golf and covering it and writing about it? Well, I, I appreciate everything implied in that question. And I, I love it. It's the only thing I've ever, you know, work-wise I've left in my life is the act of, uh, of being a reporter. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, we've got to, you know, we, we can do some stuff from our homes. So basically we need to go out and talk to people, whether we're writing about uh, the municipal golf courses that you and I, you especially, Dylan, have, have, have written about or uh, – or our own experiences from you as a caddy and you as a player, you know, that's a type of reporting, a different type of reporting or talking to the, uh, to the Greg Normans and, uh, and the Ricky Fowlers and people trying to make it in the game. You talk to people, you try to understand empathetically their experience and write it up. And the, and the only real way to do that over time uh, is in person. It takes time. It's a labor intensive uh, business. Uh, it's what I've done all my life. It's what I love to do. And, uh, I wasn't eager to fly and I drove down there and I enjoyed the drive there and I enjoyed the drive back and, and I enjoyed being there and enjoyed talking to people. And, uh, yeah, that's what we, uh, that's what we do. We're not tape recorders and we're not uh, videographers, we're reporters. We, uh, we take the information 
and we 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 cipher through it or or sift through it and uh, and decide uh, what's true and what's not and uh, not decide that's a little heavy-handed but uh, but analyze uh, it's not just the act of recording it's the the act of analyzing and yes it's what I love to do and uh, so it was it was a long-winded answer to a, a question I appreciate but uh, but right in my wheelhouse because uh, as I'm sure you knew when you asked the question. It is what I love to do. It's all I've ever wanted to do, and I hope I can keep doing it for a long time. So I want to, you know, I know this might sound uh, corny or whatever, but I'm extremely grateful to work for uh, publications, golf magazine, golf.com, uh, that still wants us uh, to do that. And I say that because we've lost a lot of our, uh, a lot of our brothers and sisters in this business are are not doing what they love to do right now because uh, the publication either doesn't exist anymore or there's not the appetite for it. So uh, I know you feel the same way, Dylan. We we're, we're lucky to work for 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 a place uh, and bosses that uh, want us to go out there and uh, get the story. That seems like the perfect place to leave it. So thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. He is the best, as always. Thank you to Lee Finer, who expertly produced this week's episode, and thank you guys for listening. We're going to be back here next week because the PGA Tour is coming back. So it's time for a refresher on everything you've missed and where we were when we were last playing live PGA Tour golf. For the Drop Zone, I'm Dylan DeChair. Thanks for listening.